0: It's good to be with you all tonight. We're going to be looking in John chapter 8, if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles there. As many of you know, uh, my family is not from Kentucky. The first time I recall coming to Kentucky was actually with a friend. Uh, Back when I was in college, we decided we were going to go out and do some camping. We were going to go visit places, so we drove down to Mammoth Cave Park and uh, we were camping there for a few days and on our last day we decided you can't go to Mammoth Cave without going in the cave. So we decided that we weren't just going to go on one of the walking tours through the cave, we were going to go on one of the hardcore tours where you got to crawl around and get muddy and get wet and that sort of stuff. And so they loaded us up in this vehicle and drive us out through the park and we come to this concrete shaft that goes down on the ground. you got to climb down a ladder. And they open this steel door or whatever. Oh, <laughs> go on in. <laughs> so we all climb into this thing. You've got your little hat on, you got your coveralls, and you got a, a little light on the front, and, and in you go. And so it, it was neat getting led around in there with this little group, going through the cave, seeing different things that you don't get to see on a normal tour through there. But uh, probably the most memorable part was about halfway through, we got into this room, and there was, there was a small underground lake. And they, they made sure everybody got in. Okay, And the guide then went to the front of the cave. And I remember her saying, now I want everybody to be as quiet as you can. So she waited until everybody quieted down. And she said, just go ahead and turn your lights off. You could feel that darkness. It was just that thick. I'm sure some of you have had that experience. You you cannot see the hand right in front of your face. You feel completely isolated. from every. There's two people right here, and suddenly it feels like there's nobody there. You feel completely alone, completely disoriented. I couldn't move if I wanted to. All I can do is just feel the cold rocks all around me. But it was nice to know that we could just push that button again, the light would come back on. We come crawling out and walk across, and the people on the normal tour have watched. They look down in this hole and they see us crawling up and out and going across and down these other holes. But uh, I'll never forget that darkness. It was so thick. And we're going to look at that sort of thing today because in our passage in John chapter eight verse twelve, Jesus speaks again, saying, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me." Will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we're since we're looking at just one verse tonight, the sermon might feel a little bit more like a a Puritan sermon. We're gonna go through and look at all the words and and think about what it means, but we're gonna think about it in two parts tonight. Okay, this verse breaks up into two simple parts. We're gonna look at first what is the light of the world. Okay, what does Jesus mean by I am the light of the world? And then look at more of the application side. What what does he call us to do in light of who he is? Okay? So we need to look at who Jesus is, and then think of how are we to live in light of that. So, even though it's a one-verse sermon, we still need to look at a little context. So turn back the page with me uh, to John chapter 7. Okay? Because every verse comes in the middle of of a lot of interaction. And uh, on in verse 737, we see that On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Okay, so what's going on here is Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem, and he's at what's called the Feast of Booths. Now, this is one of the three great festivals where people from all over the nation of Israel were to gather in Jerusalem for special sacrifices and celebration, and the Feast of Booths was one of those three We find it first in Leviticus 22, where it talks about the kind of sacrifices that you were supposed to have. But what it specifically mentions in Leviticus is that this is a time to remember when God brought the people out of Egypt. Now, now you might be thinking, well, isn't that what happened with Passover? Well, yeah, Passover looked at one part of that. Passover looked at when they, they killed the lambs and put the blood over the doorposts of their house, and God delivered them from the angel of death, which was what led them out. But booths is celebrating and remembering when they were in the wilderness, and they were all living in tents this whole time, and God provided for all their needs for all those years wandering around in the desert. This huge army of people marching through the desert, not enough food, not enough water, and God took care of them. So that's something to celebrate. And so what these people would do is they would often live in little booths that they would build on top of their houses, that's what they were instructed to do. There were special sacrifices, but it was to be a time of celebration. Deuteronomy 16 says, For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God, at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be together joyful. Okay, so Jesus in Jerusalem... For this great feast, and this isn't a sad feast, this isn't so much a time of repentance as it is a time of great celebration at the provision of God. And that's the context in which Jesus is now speaking to this crowd. But what's interesting is we find this verse over in the book of Nehemiah, okay? Just listen for a sec. In Nehemiah 8.17, it says, "...and all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity..." So this is after they've all gone into captivity to Babylon and come back. All those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, Joshua. From the time of Joshua to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. They They haven't celebrated this great joyful festival since the time of joshua hundreds of years before okay and then the verse concludes with and there was very great rejoicing okay so they were actually obeying the command finally after so many years they had to go be sent into exile before they needed to learn no we actually need to obey god's word and celebrate this festival so this is the time in which jesus grew up they've come back and a few hundred years later is the time of jesus okay But there's there's some elements I want you to understand about this feast, because it's going to play into what Jesus says here that's going to help us understand what's going on. You may want to go ahead and turn here to Zechariah 14. Keep your finger in John, and just flip over to Zechariah 14. Okay, it's right towards the end of your Old Testament's. Malachi is the last book. Zechariah is right before it. 14 is the last chapter of Zechariah. Okay, now, now listen to this. Listen to some of the imagery that's here because this is talking about the end times. Okay, this is a prophecy about the end times. Let's start in verse 7. And there will be a unique day which is known to the Lord... Neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. Okay, keep that in your mind. At evening there shall be light. Verse 8. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And then skip down to verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Okay? So this great celebration at God's provision is is being used as an image about what the last times are going to be. This great celebration that will take place from people from all of the nations. Okay? And there were two images there, right? A light at evening and living waters flowing out of Jerusalem to the east and to the west. Let's go back to John. So in John 7, 37, uh, John 737, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said... Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Okay? At the end of this feast, they would have this ritual where the priests would take these special basins and they would go to the steps of the temple and they would pour this water down the steps in, in order to simulate a river flowing out from the temple. Okay? They had read their Old Testaments. They knew the symbolism that was associated with the Feast of Booths, and they knew that this wasn't the time yet, but they wanted people to remember, they wanted to depict for people what it was going to be like, that that the provision of water in this desert land, that this water was flowing out as a sign that the nations should come here and meet with God. Jesus stands up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow living water. Okay? So Jesus is using the imagery of this feast to say something about himself. Okay, I point that out because John eight twelve, our verse for today, is that second image. The second image of the light at evening. Okay? Also at the time of the Feast of Booths, again, people are living on the roofs of their houses all over the city. And what they would do is on the four sides of the Temple Mount, which is the highest point in the city, they would set up these candelabras that were about 70 feet tall. Okay, so this is the highest point in the city, setting up something 70 feet tall. Now, that doesn't sound very tall to us. But in the ancient world, you've got to remember, things were not that tall. They, They couldn't not build things that were inordinately high. But the priests had to get up on ladders to go up and fill these things with oil... And what they would do is they'd use the old priestly garments from the past year that had worn out, had become dirty, were not fit for use anymore, and they would burn those as the wicks. So if you think of a little oil lamp and that that little wick in there, you've got this massive 70-foot-high lantern, and you've got these robes, full body-length robes, as the wicks that are sucking up the oil into the lamps. And these fires can be seen all over the city of Jerusalem. They're kept burning all throughout the night. Because, again, they had read their Old Testaments, and they wanted to symbolize what was going on there. There would be a light at evening. And Jesus said to them, I'm the light of the world. That that was pointing to me. Okay? So the imagery is something that was going on in their context, their common experience Uh, everyone would have understood what he was talking about. He's saying this at the temple. The candelabras still would have been standing there. Even if they're not lit at the time, people would have gotten what Jesus was talking about. Now, historically, this is important because as we saw in the sermon last week, Drew pointed out to us, the story about the bread of life came after the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus is in this mode of using people's experience to talk about things of faith. He wants to take something that's real, that's tangible, that's palpable to people, and he wants to show them what that has to do with faith, what that has to do with him specifically. So let's go ahead and look at this. Now that we we know some of the background there, let's see, what does Jesus mean by saying, I am the light of the world? Why did Jesus choose this image to describe himself? There's lots of other images that that happen with the Feast of Booths. He could have said something like, uh, I'm the booth of life. Whoever sits in me will find eternal rest. Okay? I mean, I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but he could have said something like that potentially. Use an image. They're all living in these booths. You need to live in me. No, he chooses light as the principal image to talk about himself here. I think that's probably because light is a more prominent image throughout the Bible. you all recall right at the beginning of Genesis on the first day, God says, let there be light. Before he's created these other things, he creates this distinction of light and darkness. This This is an utterly foundational distinction for the created world. Light and darkness. So I think that three things are symbolized here as we think about what does Jesus mean. Light symbolizes revelation. It symbolizes God's presence. And I think it's also become, by this point, a symbol of the Messiah, Light symbolizes revelation, God's presence, and it's become a symbol of the Messiah. So let's look at the idea of revelation first. Light as revelation. Think back to the first time God revealed his name to Moses in the wilderness. Jake shared that with us a few weeks ago, didn't he? From the book of Exodus, chapter 3. What was the symbol that God used when he met Moses there? Yeah. It, it was the picture of a burning bush that wasn't consumed. Okay? So there's a bush, and now that bush might have been there anyways, but Moses knew that something was different, that God's presence was there because this flame of fire was in the bush. Okay? He, could have used this, he could have used the image of water gushing out of a rock. I mean, Moses in the desert sees a waterfall coming down from this mountain. i got to go see what that is. Okay, he, God could have done that. He chose to use the symbol of fire and light to uh, point to his presence there. Okay? But also, think about the fact that that little encounter, this little bush burning, the first time that God reveals himself, reveals his name to Moses, by the time Israel gets back there, after the ten plagues, the going through the Red Sea, coming through the wilderness, they get there. In uh, Exodus chapter 19, it says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Okay, so this little burning bush, the first time Moses meets God, turns into the whole mountaintop being consumed by fire when the people of Israel get there, okay? So this image of burning light is something that's pointing to the revelation of God. Because think about it. When Moses met God, God revealed his name. I am who I am. When Israel got to Sinai, what did God do fundamentally? He revealed his law. He said, this is how you're to live now, that you're my people. Okay, I've saved you, I've brought you out, this is how you live. He's revealing something about himself, about how he wants us to live, and that symbol of light is there at the core of that. Okay, So light, but tied right to that... these images overlap, is the idea of presence, okay? This light symbolizes God's presence. The image of the bush, the fiery mountain. Okay, we think about Jesus when he's transfigured. Okay, there's just suddenly this great light that comes out from him when he's revealed, and and his disciples start to realize, okay, uh, (laughs) The the presence of God is here. Um, But also we think back again to the Old Testament. When Israel was going through the wilderness and they finally constructed this tabernacle, which was a place they would meet with God, what did it look like when God was there present at the tabernacle? It was the symbol of a, a fiery cloud, okay? So the, the image they had on Sinai was this mountain, and on top there's this great fire and all this smoke wrapped around it. And when God leads them through the wilderness, it's a, it's a pillar of cloud, and at nighttime, this pillar of cloud burns with fire to give them light, to show them the way through the wilderness where they didn't know where to go. Okay? So this symbolizes God's presence leading them through. When Moses would go to meet with God, this cloud, this fiery cloud would come down on top of the tent to symbolize God was there. And Moses, people knew Moses was meeting with God. So the light was symbolizing his presence. Think about it. Imagine yourself being in a parking lot at nighttime. It's completely dark out. Okay, there's a few stars up in the sky. But you can see across the parking lot, maybe over here at at inferior High School or something like that, you can see the lights of the football stadium are all... They're all lit up, okay? And this whole field is lit up, and you can hear some noise. You can hear something going on over there. It, it draws you to it. The light is symbolizing there's something going on there. There's something present there that makes me want to come to this. The light has this effect of drawing people. Okay? so. Light symbolizes revelation. It symbolizes God's presence. But also by this time with the prophets uh, coming on top of God's law, it symbolizes the Messiah. It symbolizes the Messiah. Um, That which combines a little bit of God's revelation and his presence. You're, You're familiar with some of these verses in Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Okay? Because what does verse 6 go on to say? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. In other words, this light shining is represented in this baby being born. Okay? Who's going to be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Okay? So the Messiah coming is like light shining into the darkness, and the people who are walking around in darkness finally, finally see it when the baby comes. Isaiah 49.6, this may not be as familiar to you, okay? but God says, he's talking about his servant, he's talking about the, the servant Messiah here, he says, it's too simple a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So again, this is talking about the Messiah. He's coming, and he's not just going to do something for the sake of the people of Israel. His light is going to be so bright, it's going to shine to all the nations, to the ends of the earth. And that's what those candelabras at the temple were meant to symbolize. They're, they're pointing to the presence of God. They're also in hope of this day when God's salvation would come and everyone who sees it would get drawn to it at the temple. Okay? So light is symbolizing God's revelation, his presence, and then finally his Messiah. And you know, John is a smart guy. The Apostle John is a smart guy. He picks up on this. And you, you're probably thinking about this as well. In John chapter 1, this theme of light is all over. We could go through the whole book of John, book of 1 John, and look at all these examples. We're just going to have to pick a couple because John uses the image of light over and over again. This is not the, when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, that's not the first time it's come up. It comes up right at the beginning. Okay? The light shines in the darkness. I'm in John 1:5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Or we could say, at this point we know, he's talking about the Messiah, right? He's talking about Jesus. And that we might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Look at that. If you haven't seen that, look at that. Look at that light. That's what he's doing. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. And then down in verse 18, we get this idea of revelation again. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He's shined the light about God to all the nations, okay? So this is what Jesus is doing. John has picked up on this, and by this point, Jesus is using his context. He's using the whole Old Testament imagery, and he says, I am the light of the world. So what's Jesus doing? I think Jesus is using a powerful, tangible element of their immediate experience to say something about himself and about his mission. Jesus is teaching us that he is God's appointed means of revelation. If light symbolizes revelation, says, I'm the light, he's saying, I'm where you get revelation about God. Jesus is teaching us that he is God's appointed means of redemption, Okay. The light was to shine and show people God's salvation. And he's saying, this is where you find it. Right here. I'm the light. Jesus is teaching us that he's the place where we meet the presence of God. So Moses met God at a burning bush. Everyone would have known that story. Jesus says, I'm the light. This is where you meet God. Okay, That pillar of fire that symbolized God's presence when Moses would go meet him, I'm the light. If you want to meet God, this is where you meet God. And Jesus is teaching us that the world can follow this pillar of fire through the darkness. He's gonna lead God's people from here on out. Okay? So I think we've 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 looked at that, and that's helpful to understand Jesus' light, what he's saying about himself. And before we move on to like, okay, what do we do with this? Let's just pause and do what Israel was supposed to do at the Feast of Booths. They were supposed to rejoice, okay? Because we need to realize, like those prophecies said, we're the people that have been walking about in darkness. We're the people like I was in that cave, except we don't have a light. There's no light on our helmet to get us out. We're groping about in the dark, feeling isolated, feeling confused, and yet light suddenly comes in to our situation, shines in, shows us the way out of that cave. We should rejoice at that. We should give thanks to God. That's the, that's the first thing we should do when we hear this, that Jesus is the light. We should rejoice in this truth. We should celebrate Jesus is the light of the world. I love songs that mention that, even like Be Thou My Vision is a great one. That idea that he, he is something that's shining out there and we can follow that light out ahead of us. But Jesus gives us some real specific things to do, doesn't he? Even though it's a short verse. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Okay, So we got this idea of follow me. But he will have the light of life. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? And what does it mean to have the light of life? I tell you, following Jesus is one of John's great pictures about what it means to trust in Jesus. Okay, I'm going to equate those two terms. To follow Jesus is one of John's various images he's using in this book to talk about what it means to trust Jesus. You probably know the purpose of the book of John. In uh, John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So, John tells us at the end of the book this is why I wrote this book. This is why you need to read, when you read this book, I want you to believe this stuff. Okay? And all throughout the book, He's giving us different images through the words of Jesus about what it means to do that, what it means to believe. So, in chapter 1, verse 12, it talks about receiving Jesus as a guest. In 4.14, it talks about believing in Jesus is like drinking water. In 6.53, we heard last week, believing in Jesus is like eating bread. Okay, you have, the, you have to take this into you. Okay, 8.12, believing in Jesus is like following a light when you're in a dark place. Believing in Jesus is like following the voice of a shepherd. Chapter 10, verse 8. Believing in Jesus is like walking down a path that's clearly laid out for you, John 14, 6. Believing in Jesus is like being a branch that's abiding in the vine and just staying there and finding all of its life, John 15, 4. Okay, so John gives all these images, and here he's talking about you need, believing is like following a light in the darkness, So again, we think back to that image of the pillar of fire in the wilderness. The pillar of fire going before the people of God, leading through the darkness, showing them the way to go. They've never been there before. They don't know where they are. They don't have maps. They don't have GPS. They can't pull out their iPhones and look out where they are. They have one light out ahead of them, leading. I think I would follow the light. Okay? We need to follow... The light, where the light goes, we go. Where the light goes, we go. Where God's word directs us, we go. I was looking at a doctrinal statement for a school last night, and uh, it talked about God's word being authoritative. That's a good word. I like that word. Authoritative. God's word is an authority. It can tell us what to do. It tells us where to go. That's why we have such an emphasis here at this church about being in the Word. That's why when we preach and teach our Sunday school classes, we want to always bring things back to the Word because this is authoritative. Not what anyone says. This is the authority. God's Word is the authority. It is what tells us where to go. It has a binding nature upon our souls. Now, whenever there's an authority, we need to submit ourselves to it. Okay? The, light, the pillar of light going through... The darkness, I can say, well, I'm not going to follow that. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to sit on my rock. Okay? And all the people march by. The light goes off. I can't see it anymore. And I'm left in darkness, all alone. And I don't know where to go. Okay? So we have to submit ourselves to this. We have to come to this book. And when we open it, we have to say, God, open your word to me. And open me to your word. Okay? I want to understand this book but I also want to be open to doing what this book tells me. Okay? That's, that's part of what light is. It's, re, it's revealing things to us, but it's authoritative revelation. We need to receive it. We need to take God's word in, and as we receive it, we need to be willing and ready to follow it wherever it takes us. But this last image, I, I struggled with this phrase. Think about it with me a little bit, how strange it is. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus didn't say, you'll see the light of life. He said, you will have the light of life. What's he talking about here? I and mean, the first thing that comes to mind is every night when I'm, I'm at work, I walk around and just making sure all the children at the home where I work are safe. And last night, uh, someone had taken the, uh, you know, fancy little LED flashlight and had misplaced it. So we had to use this gigantic metal flashlight that looks like it's from the 1950s, you know, like this could be a weapon as well as it, well it is a flashlight. But uh, it's, it's walking around in the darkness, and I've got a light with me, okay? I have a light with me. That's the first thing I thought of when I'm thinking about this. I have a light, and it's with me. For those of you that... Our Lord of the Rings fans, like myself, you think of Frodo in the darkness, and he's got this giant monster spider chasing him through this cave. He doesn't know where he is, he's lost, and he remembers someone had given him a light. He pulls it out and he says these words, and suddenly this little flask of water lights up with the light of a star, and everything is visible. He can find his way out now because he has a light. He'd forgotten he had it, but he pulls it out and he has a light, and the light suddenly becomes a means of salvation for him. When we face the dark tunnel of death, when we face the black fog of the moral chaos in our society, we need to have a light, don't we, friends? We've got to have some authoritative truth that we come back to again and again to say, you know, I don't know everything, but I know where this book leads, and I've got to follow this book. This is light. God's word, God's revelation in Jesus coming through the apostles in this book is light to us. And we need to follow it. And praise God that we have it. And let's pray for those people around the world that don't have it. In our Sunday school class, someone today brought up you know, the, the, the fact that a lot of these folks around the world have never read God's word. Some of them, even in the 21st century, still do not have it in their own language. They don't have light. They don't have it. Maybe they have access to it through a second or third language, but most of them do not have it. Let's be thankful for having light. Let's avail ourselves of it, and let's pray that the light would go out to all the world. But the last point I wanted to to bring up about this was something that that came to me as I was thinking about what does it mean to have light? This isn't just a light that I control. I can turn this flashlight on and off, you know, put this book away and choose to obey it when I want to, when I don't want to. This is a light that changes us. When you have this light, it changes you. In John chapter 12, why don't you go ahead and turn there with me. Jesus brings this up one more time. John 12, 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light... Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This idea of being a son of something is a common phrase in Hebrew. If you're, you're a son of something, it means you so closely identify with that thing that you're a son of it. Okay? People look at someone's son and say, hey, it he looks just like his father. Okay? He completely identifies with his parent. Okay? If we are a son of light, we're going to be people that identify with, light. The light isn't something we control, it's something that starts to control and to change us. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. I thought you were the light of the world, Jesus. But if that light gets in us, and we become sons of the light, in one sense we do become the light of the world that people start to see God through us. We're not God the way Jesus is. When people see God, when people see Jesus, they see God. We hope that when people see us, they start to see Jesus, that the light coming from our lives points people to him and to his truth. In 1 John, he gives a lot of examples, and he uses this imagery of light. He says, walk in the light just like he is in the light. We need to walk in, we need to be people who are in the light, just like Jesus is in the light. And how do we know that we're doing that? That you love one another. That you love your brother. If you hate your brother and say that you're walking in the light, you're a liar. Okay? You're not in the light. The light will change you. It will make you into a different person. It will start to work the holiness of God into our lives as we expose ourselves to the light day after day. It starts to transform us, and we need to pray that that would be so. Every time we come to it, we want to see more. We want to see more, but we also want to be more. We want to see more of who God is, and we want to be more like him. Well, there was a man who was at the feast that year. And Jesus stood up and said these words. We don't know if, if, if he heard them or not for sure. The first time. This man was sitting outside the temple. And as Jesus walked by, his disciples point to this guy and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said to them, that's not the point, guys. Okay? The point is so that the works of God might be seen in his life. And he goes over to this guy, bends down on the ground, spits, makes some mud, Rubs it on his eyes, says, Go to the pool. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay? So, this idea of the light of the world would have been the last thing that this guy heard before he got sent down to the pool of Siloam, which from the temple you'd have to walk down quite a ways to get to this reservoir. And you get down there, you can imagine somebody helping him down to the pool. And this guy who has lived his whole life in darkness has known nothing but darkness. Ever since he could hear, he could taste, he could feel things, but he's never seen light. And when that water hit his face, it's like a lightning bolt in his life. Suddenly, everything was light. Jesus had given him light. And this man goes on to bear incredible witness about Jesus and comes to believe in him. That's the story that follows right after in John chapter 9. The man born blind finally gets to see the light. Jesus does a miracle in his life. So let's be praying for that miracle in our lives, that we would see more, that we would be more, and that God would do that through us, that many others would see and come and believe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for coming into our darkness, the darkness of our sin the darkness of our lives and shining your light. We want to be more open to you. We don't want to hide things in closets and close the doors and say, we don't want light in there, Jesus. Just out here in the living room is fine, not over there in the closet. Open our whole lives to your light. Shine it and change us. Help us to follow your light that your authoritative truth would be our guide in the darkness of the society, of the darkness of the challenges that we're facing right now, that we could see you and follow you and rejoice. And we pray all this in your great name. Amen.